yeah, so I think we have to take it seriously because because these characters, as you you you, you called it completely right, they launder these ideologies, they write papers, they they write white papers, they invite MPs to their summer parties, and what was once extreme is normal. Welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology, and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Sean Norris about the increasing attacks on reproductive care and abortion rights, and the network of far-right organisations driving them. Before we start, one small bit of housekeeping. Some of you may have noticed that Twitter nearly broke this week, so if you want to keep up to date with Red Medicine without having to rely on that website make sure you're subscribed to the podcast or you can follow us on Instagram at medicine underscore red or you could sign up to the mailing list on the website. So Sean Norris, who will be joining us today, is a writer and investigative journalist who has covered the far right and its relocation to the mainstream for a number of publications, including the Byline Times and Open Democracy, as well as writing on a range of topics for publications including The Guardian and The New Statesman. Today we're going to be discussing the research in her new book, Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global, which was published with Verso Books last month. Specifically in our conversation, we're going to be talking about the attacks on abortion care, most explicitly reflected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the US. We get into why this is happening, who it benefits, and the shared fascist imaginary that these movements all rely on. We also touch on how the attacks on reproductive rights relate to the increase in anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, specifically the anti-trans movement. And Sean also links it to the Great Replacement Theory, which is a white supremacist conspiracy theory that's gone mainstream thanks to the work of toxic media figures like Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray. So lots to get into today. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so by signing up for a £1 a month donation on the website, or you can rate this show five stars on Apple or Spotify, or most importantly, share this episode with people you think might enjoy it. So, on to the conversation with Sean. So one of the reasons why I've been really looking forward to speaking to you is because the topic of your book is something that's kind of come up over and over again in the background of lots of different conversations I've had with people Mm. Um, this kind of recent period of kind of intensifying attacks on reproductive rights and access um, it's it's touching on a lot of issues and shaping a lot of the kind of discussions that that I've been having with people on here and so I was really you know really pleased to read your book that you're kind of putting it all into one place and providing a kind of comprehensive framework to to discuss it and there's there's a lot of different things that I want to ask you about but I thought just to start us off I would ask you if you could characterize the the current moment we're in with regards to reproductive access and rights and the attacks that are happening on them 
as a as a sort of general introduction for people yeah so that's um characterizing where we are for reproductive rights is quite a big question because it's a diverse answer so i think we're speaking nearly a year on from the dobbs decision at the us supreme court which overruled um the roe versus wade decision which had allowed for safe and legal abortion across the us which sent shockwaves around the world. I mean, for someone like me, who's spent the last few years embedded in the anti-abortion movement, looking at the trends, looking at what's been going on, it, it wasn't a surprise to me. It was a shock, but it wasn't a surprise. But a lot of people were really, really shocked by what happened with Roe. And partly because Trump had lost the election, people were sort of like, oh, well, Biden's in, Roe will be safe now. It doesn't work like that in the US. It's a Supreme Court decision. And so a lot of the people that I've spoken to post the Roe decision, working in reproductive rights around the world, have kind of talked about the impact that that has had. Countries where abortion has been contested or remains criminalised or very, very restricted have said that it kind of has emboldened those who wish to keep it that way, who want to stop abortion rights from advancing. So, for example, I've spoken to reproductive rights activists in um, East Africa who have talked about how the opposition groups to abortion are like, well, if it's if America doesn't have it, why should it's you know why should we have it? If they think it's wrong, if they think it's bad, if they think it's sinful, then why would they want to impose that on our country? That's the kind of narrative we're seeing. In Europe, you know, we have a region that is much more liberal abortion laws in general. Um, abortion is available on demand in most countries in Europe. It's banned in most circumstances in Poland and in all circumstances in Malta. So I think the issue that we're seeing in Europe, particularly right now, is very much, um, well, there's sort of two issues, one that's very localised and one that's broader. The localised issue is Poland, so where we have the situation where abortion is banned in nearly all circumstances. And this has had a big problem, particularly for Ukrainian refugee women who have fled over the border to Poland from Ukraine, some of them with unwanted pregnancies, some of them with pregnancies as a result of rape as a weapon of war, and they can't access safe and legal abortion in Poland. And I think in some ways, horrifically, that has shone a light on the, the state of Poland's abortion laws. Perhaps people who weren't very aware of the restrictions before the war in Ukraine are now more, more awake to those issues. But of course, it's also impacting women and girls in Poland who need to have access to safe and legal abortion. And we know that since Poland tightened the ban in January last year, at least three women have died as a result of being denied reproductive health care. So that's the kind of local issue in, in Europe. The more regional picture is that, again, abortion laws fairly liberal, generally available on demand, but a kind of greater pushback, particularly in countries that have elected far right or authoritarian governments. So abortion remains legal in Hungary, for example, but it's much more contested. There's kind of a, an erosion of the rights that are available. In Italy, they've just elected last year a far right party. Again, kind of rhetoric about abortion rights has become much more heightened. And Italy was always another country like Hungary, where they've got various sort of restrictions in place that make it harder to get abortion, such as um, conscientious objections and things like that. And then finally, seeing as I'm talking from Bristol in the UK, I'll talk about the UK. So the UK um, picture for abortion rights and access to reproductive health care is complicated. I'm going to just talk about Britain 
and talk about Northern Ireland in a second, but in Britain, um, abortion technically remains a criminal offence. So abortion is governed by the 1862 Offences Against a Persons Act, and it is allowed in specific circumstances and exemptions that were laid out in the 1967 Abortion Act. So this means um, mainly now that a woman or girl who needs to get an abortion has to get permission from two doctors who can affirm that continuing the pregnancy will have a harmful impact on her emotional or physical health. So what this means is that you can still go to prison for having an abortion if you do not follow the really strict exemptions in the Act. There's also an issue around access to later term abortions. So women who um, have to terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason sort of post 12 weeks when you need to have a surgical intervention, it's quite, it can be quite difficult to get that because um, of the sort of number of doctors, let alone NHS waiting times that we're all very familiar with. And the other issue in, the, in Britain is that migrant women um, who are subject to NHS charging have to pay to access abortion care. So even though we kind of think Britain, very liberal, pro-abortion country, there are still all these kind of technicalities in the laws and access that can make it difficult. It's very, very rare that a doctor, the two-doctor rule, would lead to a woman not accessing an abortion. But it's a hoop you have to go through. And as I say, when we've got NHS waiting times like they are, trying to get a doctor's appointment, let alone two, is yeah. tricky. But we have seen progress. The biggest progress in the UK was obviously the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland. And mm -hmm. then last year, they made a permanent change to one of the exemptions in the Abortion Act so that women can now take telemedicine for abortion care, which means you can get a prescription and take the pills at home, whereas previously you had to take abortion pills on registered medical premises. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a mixed picture depending on where you are in the, in the world, but also depending on what your needs are, in particularly in the UK. Yeah, and again, I'm going to ask a question that will have a sort of mixed answer with differences in different national contexts mm. if we were to kind of periodize the moment we're in now and, and to sort of obviously we can't pinpoint an exact start and obviously not an end but it, if you could talk a little bit about how, how we might look at what we're going through now within a kind of a time frame of, of when we can kind of see this movement across various contexts gaining a kind of momentum um I thought it was interesting in your writing that you do look to the 2008 financial crash uh, as a kind of maybe not an initial turning point, but certainly a, a place to start to look for, for where this is coming from for a whole set of complex reasons that we'll probably get into in more detail later on. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of the states, the really important thing to realise is that as soon as Roe was passed, the, the decision that allowed for safe legal abortion, you know, the anti-abortion movement was on on it. They've spent 50 years trying to get what they wanted and they finally they finally got it. So I think, you know, there's always been this backlash against abortion rights um, in every country where it's been the laws have been liberalised at any point where that happens. But I think there are two things that are really interesting about the moment that we're in now. The first is that I think we're in a broader backlash against women's rights and women's freedoms that obviously is very embodied in abortion rights. And this has come from the fact that we have gone through a period of greater awareness of feminism, women speaking out about sexual harassment, the Me Too moment, the, the gains for abortion rights, for example, in Ireland, you know, a sense that women have actually been gaining something and doing better and, and that there's been platforms for women to speak about the issues that impact them. 
when this happens, and this is shown throughout history, if you look at 1920s Italy, 1930s Germany, 1860s America, when women start to make progress, there's always a backlash. And the easiest way to have a backlash is through abortion rights, because if you don't have access to reproductive health care and if you don't have control over your own body, you don't have full human rights. So I think that's part of it. And we've seen this, you know, you can kind of look at the last 13 years, sort of Gamergate in 2013. This was a moment of like, you know, real violent misogyny pushing back against women's progress and the sort of the, the noise of the feminist movement. 2016, I talk in the book about the sort of red pill men's rights subculture and their support for Trump. Again, this idea that there was a war on men and we needed to win it, as in we, Trump and the, the men's rights activists, not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you do that by just stripping away women's human rights, be that their right to protection from sexual violence and sexual harassment to the right of abortion. And yeah, the 2008, I think, is a really interesting moment that I think we're all still grappling with in many, many ways. It was a point when sort of everything changed and yet nothing was acknowledged to have changed. And the systems that were in place, the the systems that we were told were permanent, the the ideology that was never an ideology as in neoliberalism, you know, these are the things that will, history is over, this is fixed, this is always, it is always going to be like this. And then suddenly it wasn't and it all fell apart and it fell apart for I mean, I'm not an econ economist, but left-wing economists tell me that they fell apart for entirely predictable reasons. <laughs> um, and what we ended up with was a disenfranchised population who, you know, had lost the narrative that they'd been promised. He'd lost the, 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 the narrative that had kind of held everything together, had smashed to pieces, and there was nothing there to replace it. And what happens when you lose control, you lose the narrative, the things that you thought you could trust or that were always sort of meant to be permanent have broken is the far right sweeps in with a very strong persuasive narrative that, you know, immigrants are the enemy, women, a woman took your job, you can't even get a girlfriend and whose fault is that? And all that kind of disenfranchisement and confusion and anger and resentment can be really channeled into hating marginalized groups again be that migrant people lgbtq plus people and in this case or in the case that i'm looking at particularly is at, at women um so i think 2008 was we i think we still need to have a reckoning about it i think even when we talk about everything that's happened since then and what is it 15 years ago you know brexit trump you know there's so many things that happened and we kind of know what they're linked to but we still are nervous of talking about it and so I try and make that point in my book that the financial crash did did create a lot of change and it created a gap. People can exploit that and they've done. And we know, again, if you look to history, this has happened before. Mm. I am going to ask you about that sort of wider fascist imaginary that you talk about so much in the book in a moment. But because you're already starting to do it there, I was wondering if you could talk about why it was so important for you in, in the work you've done that's gone into this book to situate the question of access to abortion within an analysis that takes into account its its kind of role in various ways in sort of politics of race, politics of class, gender, trans politics, all these things, you know, it touches on all these things and, and also provides a kind of a, a gateway issue into all these things. I mean, could you just talk a little bit about what, why this 
singular issue is so key to kind of thinking about all these other political questions that are you know, really important. I mean, I think abortion is fundamental because abortion is so linked to your freedom and your humanity. Like if you don't have control over your own body, if you don't have the right to bodily integrity, then you cannot be free. Your your body can be exploited and used by other forces, be those in the case that I'm looking at really like patriarchal forces. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that fascism is kind of rooted in a sphere of freedom. This is not my definition, it's um definition of Paul Mason, but I think it really makes sense when looking at abortion. You know, it's that fear of freedom and so wanting to clamp down on freedoms and there's nothing more fundamental than the freedom you have over your own body. So in terms of how this intersects with kind of wider far-right movements and, you know, racism, homophobia, transphobia, all of these issues, is because abortion is really linked to various far-right conspiracy theories. The The number one being the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, which erroneously and baselessly argues... I'm sure your viewers will be familiar with it, that um, white people in the global north are being replaced by black and global majority people migrating from the global south, and that this is being aided by feminists who repress the white birth rate through abortion and contraception, thereby aiding, scare quotes, white genocide. Um, and the way to reverse that is through, I've, you know, <laughs> what Richard Spencer, I think, called benign ethnic cleansing or something like that. I mean, anyway, basically horrific violence against black people and migrant people and also reproductive control of white women and sterilization of black and global majority women so i think it's um once you kind of understand that that that, that abortion rights are really fundamental to the far right vision for the world and that they want to restrict women's reproductive freedoms because they want to create their version of the future which is individual ethno states and and endless violence then it suddenly becomes, okay, well, this is very connected to all of the other aspects of fascist ideology and far-right thinking. There's this idea in, in fascism that, you know, men are superior, women are inferior, black black and global majority people are inferior, and LGBT people just don't exist. They're just, you know, not even that they don't exist, that they shouldn't exist. Yeah. And this is their, this is what they want to create. This is the world that they believe in. And so it's really important to them that they have reproductive control over women's bodies because then they can build that future and build that world. Mm. And so, I mean, I was quite, I don't think I really started making these connections until about 2017 when I was spending far too long looking at anti-abortion literature and just seeing all of these great replacement aspects and this publication that referred to the aliens in British classrooms. I mean, real kind of, echoes of Mussolini style language and and sort of praising Eastern European countries that were anti-abortion because they were kind of protecting their own people. And, and so it was really understanding that there was a big, a section of anti-abortion ideology that was re- rooted in anti-migrant thinking, rooted in racism and rooted in white male supremacy. And then that was it for me. I was like, right, I've got to start talking about this. We have to move the debate on to understand what the real threats are and why those threats are being made. Yeah, I mean, again, there's like a lot of different ways I think we could go with that. But what, one thing that comes to mind immediately is like hearing you talk about the the red pill and like the manosphere and and this kind mm-hmm. of new online 
I suppose it's not a new form of misogyny, but it, it has newer aspects of older misogyny and, and kind of figures kind of popping up and, and, and a really growing sense of what it means to be a man. Um, mm. And I was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that, the kind of white supremacist imaginary uh, and, and politics you're outlining there and, and, and what image of male identity is provided in that image because it's sort of shockingly popular Mm. Um, and it's a lot of people aren't really sure what to do with it and aren't really sure why it's so appealing and I wondered if you could talk about what it kind of provides for men in terms of having a kind of control over women or a kind of image of themselves as something or what what image of themselves it provides in a society more generally yeah so I mean it's a toxic one let's go I mean the far right ideal of manhood is is not good for men. It's definitely not good for women. You know, I think it's very much based. So there's this idea again in the sort of fascist ideology that we need to be in a constant state of war, a constant state of violence. And if you look at the far right infosphere, they're always preparing for day X, Boogaloo, which is the big civil war. And some thought it was going to be the 6th of Jan. And, you know, in some ways it was. But um, and where so there's this idea that of men having to be fighters, having to be warriors, and women's role in the war is reproduction. You know, you're re- reproducing the next generation generation of soldiers who are going to fight in Boogaloo. I mean, God, they're so sad. <laughs> just like people are so weird. So there's that very much idea that of of kind of you know classic sort of alpha male, the fighter, the the the. But there's also this idea of them having authority over the home, having authority over women, having authority over ch- their children, which again is is interesting in in terms of some of the more mainstream right wing arguments that we see against feminism and against women's rights. And so I mean I spent a lot of time on the red pill and incel spaces. So incels being the involuntary celibate community that are often rooted in really nasty racism and misogyny. And they talk a lot about, you know, there was this one post that I always remember, like, every man should be guaranteed a wife. It's like women are seen as objects for you to own and for you to, you know, it's not about a woman falling in love with a woman or meeting a woman or hooking up with a woman because you you both have a spark or a connection. It's like this is what you are owed as a man. And if you don't get that, then you have a right to claim it. And that's the really scary stuff. It's it's, And that's where we get to that kind of thing about dehumanizing women and not seeing women as people with their own wants and desires and voices. It's like you are an object that can be passed around between, you know, two men literally handed out to men. And I think, you know, what we've seen, and this kind of goes back to some of the stuff around 2008, is this real growth of male rage at at losing out on things that they believe they're entitled to and obviously you know hashtag not all men um (laughs) but this if we're talking in sort of in this particular subculture this idea that feminism has denied you the things that you should get to have and that there's a big sort of thought pattern within the far right that that men nowadays are weak they're soy boys that they've been emasculated by feminism, that they're sexually, you know, impotent because they're dating these strong women who tell them what to do and push them around. And there's a guy called um, Millennial Woes who does a 
terrifying line in this kind of stuff about the sort of the weakening of the Western man and and um, Mark Colette too has I can't remember the title of his book but it's that kind of message and so there's this idea that you have to you know be anti-feminism that if, if feminism has taken things away from you that is your right then you have to reclaim that and you have to reclaim that violently and then you have something like the red pill culture which is is just a sort of interesting one because it's slightly different from incels and people kind of tend to muddle them all up into one big mass misogynist and there are subtle differences so in red pill the, the idea was that you had to improve yourself as a man which on the one hand could be quite a positive message you know there's a lot of stuff about being fit like doing exercise eating better things that we could all do with particularly post-pandemic when um but then it becomes into this message about becoming the alpha male and not being a beta male and the reason you want to get hench is because then you can get girls and girls as, or women are seen as conquests you know it's like you gain women into having sex with you and then you discard them and that's what makes you a man which also you know clashes with the other side of that culture which is that you know women should be you know, sexually pure and you should, so they, they they want their cake and eating it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a toxic and, that, you know, it's not, like I said, it's not good for men. It's not good to, for men to, to think that in order to be a man, you have to look a certain way, front a certain way, treat women in a really degrading and negative way. And obviously it's not good for women to be treated in a negative and degrading way. And you look at these places, these forums, you know, incels aren't happy. Stop making them happy being in this in this space. So we need to, you know, it goes back to lots of things about having more positive male role models and positive conversations about masculinity and sexuality and all of that stuff. And because if we don't do that, the answers are found in the the red pills and the Andrew Tates and the Gamer Gators, just as I said the far right kind of fills up these holes where narratives could be. I mean, one thing that really struck me as well about maybe like the last five, maybe longer years is, no, de- actually probably definitely longer, but kind of figures that have made incredibly profitable careers by sort of laundering these more extreme um, like worldviews. I mean, you know, I feel like I've been familiar with the Great Replacement Theory for a long time and then was really um, and in a sense was like you know Nazis are scum they're going to do scummy Nazi things the thing that really unsettled me I think you know a few years ago was seeing figures like Douglas Murray or Jordan Peterson who you know they're writing in the times they're headlining Oxford Literary Festival and they're kind of really walking the line of yeah, I'm going to write a book about the Great Replacement in the in the instance of Douglas Murray, but I'm going to I'm just going to sort of sand off the edges and I'm going to make it sound quite respectable. And then all of a sudden, you have people that are you know certainly not self-identified, certainly would be you know would not consider themselves fascists, kind of repeating you know almost verbatim these like extremist worldviews. And and I, and I was just wondering like what you what you kind of make of that process. I mean, and how how you've kind of witnessed. I guess the two sides of that coin in a way, because they seem to like what like what what are the sort of two functions that you see those two different kind of figures or, or sort of subcultures, if we can call the times colonist subculture, or just cultures like performing? I mean it, it's it's really important because as 
much fun as it might be to spend a lot of time on far right telegram and in cell forums looking at people saying extreme things I mean it's not fun it's a miserable way to spend your day but you know if it was just happening there then okay as you say horrible people have horrible views it doesn't it's not very nice hopefully they don't act out on those views but it's a, a it's happening in these dark corners of the internet and probably doesn't warrant having a whole book written about it but um, it's that I, it's that fact that what we're seeing is these extremist ideas becoming mainstream because of these people who turn up at conferences wearing a smart suit, because they've got organisations that have got accreditation at the UN, or I'm not sure if it's called accreditation, but whatever the um, formal procedure is, because they're, you know, speaking on CNN or BBC News and and not saying, you know, the words that we might see on the extremist forums, but doing that, oh, immigration is a problem, or, you know, are we having enough babies? What was it, Miriam Cates at the National Conservatism Conference being like, the one thing liberal individualism has failed to deliver is babies. And I'm like, to me, and I'm prepared to give her the benefit of the doubt because I accept that not everybody reads these things, but as soon as you hear the thing, individualism linked to not having enough babies, that takes me to the great replacement theory and, and particularly to certain manifestos written connected to that theory, which is really scary. But you're not going to look at someone like her and be like, oh, this is a far right conspiracy theory. So it becomes normal and it becomes, oh, yeah, maybe we should have more babies. And but we don't want to fix the housing crisis. So maybe we should make it, you know, like it's it's these kind of things. And and I think what we've seen is because mainstream organizations or mainstream right-wing figures have started repeating and repeating the views and and then repeating them a little bit more extreme and a little bit more and a little bit more we get them then into government and I mean one of the moments I talk about in the book is when Orban uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary was talking at I think it was just a speech to the EU but anyway it was a big speech and he talked about how Hungary wasn't interested in having immigration that you needed to make your own children um and then he even got to the point at one of a, a conference a couple of years later where he's then talking about people being replaced and so you can see in real time this kind of hit like immigration is the problem women aren't having enough babies but we'll just kind of leave it at that to then using the word replaced and using the word Christian Hungary and a Christian Europe and I think that's what we're kind of and I, that's what really scares me that it's not, it's these extremist views that fester away and then they just start sneak, sneaking out and and then they become the views expressed by people who can actually make laws. And I think I start the book with a quote from someone called Steve King, who was a Republican congressman up until the last, elect, like the 2020 election. And he, you know, said that we are replacing people in our we are replacing our culture and we are losing what you know American babies at a rate of x million abortions a year and this is someone who had a vote in congress you know <laughs> like it's and yeah so I think we have to take it seriously because because these characters as you you you, you called it completely right they launder these ideologies they write papers they they write white papers, they invite MPs to their summer parties, and what was once extreme is normal. You do an excellent job of outlining the fact that this isn't 
just the kind of accidental thing that just seems to be happening. This is it's organized, it's well funded, um, it's collaborative across international borders. Um, and you know, we and we can't really go into as much detail obviously as you go in the book here, but I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the, the structure of this or this this organized collection of movements in different contexts and perhaps some of the different political currents behind it. Could you talk a little bit about the different stakeholders, the different demographics, and maybe even some of the institutions that are kind of working together to construct this movement? So I think it's, if you look from a European perspective, you can kind of see organisations that support each other and fund each other, and that all sit on each other's boards. So up until the sort of late 2010s, central to that was this sort of network, a shadowy network, as we call it, called Agenda Europe, which brought together various kind of anti-gender, anti-abortion people, be they funders, and that could include um, for some reason, there's a very big trend in Europe of wealthy aristocratic families being very invested in anti-gender activism and funding a lot of it. You'd also have like Vatican surrogates. You'd have organizations linked to US um, religious freedom giants. And they would come together and socialize and and strategize. And Agenda Europe put together a really a f- sort of interesting, if that's a word for it, manifesto that was leaked in around 2014, which laid out its... Um, strategies like its aims which will you know ban abortion roll back lgbtq protections ban contraception in almost all cases get rid of divorce classic kind of anti-gender um far-right aims um but also the strategies of how you would win those aims and one of the really crucial strategies that it had was to get its people into international bodies such as in front of the un into um, PACE, like Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, I think it is. Um, there's so many acronyms in the EU. I'm just like, <laughs> um, into sort of in, into the, in front of European parliaments or be members of European parliaments. So you could kind of see that this, this network was bringing together people, but also getting them into positions of influence, which goes back to what we were saying before about how these ideas became mainstream. So that's kind of Europe. And then the sort of big player in Europe that was very linked to Citizen um, to Agenda Europe is Citizen Go, which is a kind of petitioning platform, which petitions on everything um, to do with gender, like from tra- overruling Roe. I mean, they've had a petition to do that. I'm not sure <laughs> the Supreme Court was going to listen to a petition, but hey, hey. Um, to like, there's a trans woman in a Pantene advert. We need to petition against that. So a real kind of range of of issues and what they do is you know they they basically bring together kind of European activism and you know they're active in the UK they're they're a Spanish organization originally they're very close to the sort of far-right Vox party in Spain and they are constantly increasing their influence and actually I was doing a podcast yesterday and they said that they'd heard that Citizen Go was moving into Australia so they're getting quite big and they're also very active in sort of countries with more fragile abortion laws, such as sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. But again, when you, I mean, I talk about Citizen Go because to me, they're, they're like, when you look at them, you can see how connected everyone is. So on Citizen Go's board, 
is a chap called Brian Brown, who was the um, with the National Organization for Marriage in the US and also the president of the World Congress of Families, which is a big conference that brings together anti-gender activists. And, you know, Orban spoke at it. Matteo Salvini spoke at it. Um, there's some very sort of distant connections with UK politicians, but not maybe that'll come up again and now that they're sort of getting more comfortable sharing these platforms. Um, you know, Brian Brown was in Georgia in Tbilisi doing an event with a far-right sort of political character just days before the far-right attacked the attempted Pride Parade. So, you know, it's again, it's like this American character who's very involved in European anti-gender activism while being very influential around the world in the States. They're also linked to um, Agenda Europe was close to uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the huge religious freedom organisations in the States that was very influential in, in overruling Roe, um, has put forward legal arguments on various kind of anti-abortion measures in the US and is now increasingly active under its inter European name, ADF International, in the UK and was, for example, defending the woman that was arrested outside the Birmingham abortion clinic for, you know, breaking the um, public public space protection order. So there is this real sense that I mean the thing is, and I remember talking to someone when I was researching the book. So we all do this on the left or in human rights circles. We all work with different organisations. We have transnational organising. Um, it's not an unusual thing to do, but it is interesting how you can see who's funding which organizations, where they're working, who's on each other's boards. Um, and you sort of start to feel like that meme of the man with the cigarette dangling out of his mouth and the board and all the red string. And you're like, they're all connected. But there are there are these really interesting connections. And the reason they're doing it is because, particularly in the States, after the, the equal marriage change in the US, they became very active in certain parts of Europe that didn't yet have equal marriage because their message was, um, you know, we lost. We we lost in the States. We 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 lost marriage. Um, and we can help you win. We can make sure that this doesn't happen in your country. And now we've got the flip side of that. In a, they won on abortion. So now they're like, right, we can help you follow our lead. Mm. And so there is that real need, I think, for these movements to have international organising and we should be really aware of the network nature of it all. Sorry, that was quite a rambling answer, but hopefully it kind of no, no, gave a bit of a summary. <laughs> no, that was really helpful. And I think it's good that you highlight, this is something we do on the left, and quite rightly, it's, it's yeah. international organising. You know, yeah. and... There's nothing wrong per se with international organising. Yeah, of course. But it's also, if you want to make sense of a sort of reactionary movement, it's like, well, you know, how is it structured? I mean, there's definitely a tendency as well to maybe depend you know i think people on the right overplay the degree to certain grassroots movements mm. and downplay the role of funding from the ultra rich but i also think on the left there's potentially a risk of overemphasizing the role of funding from ultra rich oligarch whatever you want to call it, that kind of world of dark money as it's sometimes referred to and perhaps underplaying the the disappointing and sort of worrying role of genuine grassroots organizing that, that does exist and I suppose with that being said I mean where, where does the money come from you know like to what degree is this I mean there is a lot of money yeah because because you know there's a lot of people I mean there's loads of people on the left that want to organize 
there isn't loads of billionaires willing to throw out cash by the nature of the you know the politics it's like one right um yeah so I felt very lucky that when I started writing the book um this amazing researcher called Neil Datta had put together a report called Tipping the Iceberg and saving me a huge amount of time because he had tracked a lot of the money that was going into uh, anti-gender movements and yeah I'm so indebted to Neil's research like it's just one of the most important reports I've ever read. And he, you know, the, the work, I mean, he's just amazing. And I always give him full credit when I talk about this section because I didn't wade through loads of um, tax returns. Um, I mean, I did wade through quite a lot to look at, do my own research, but there was um, this, this bulk of research that existed already, which was great. So he identified in Europe particularly, but this also applies in some cases to sort of areas like sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, that there are kind of three sources of money of anti-gender activism in Europe. The first is from Europe itself. And this is really important because I think there's a tendency in particularly liberal Europeans to be like, oh, everybody in Europe would be pro-abortion and pro-LGBT if it wasn't for those pesky Americans or like those pesky Russians with their money. But actually, there's a very galvanized, motivated anti-gender movement working in Europe just fine on their own. And so a lot of this money, as I mentioned, is coming from a sort of aristocratic, it's very strange, aristocratic families that you didn't think even existed anymore. Um, and part of that is because they want to recreate the past. They want to recreate the past where we had feudal systems, where the aristocrats were in the ascendance, where there's this organization called Tradition, Family and Property. And it literally is what it says on the tin. You know, it's linked to European aristocracy and they want tradition and they want family and they want property and everyone to know their place. And obviously, if you look back through 20th century history, you know, the upper classes tended to side with the far-right and fascist dictatorships and movements in Europe, be that in Spain or Germany or Italy. There's a reason for them to do that. <laughs> like they, they benefit from far-right politics. So that's one aspect. And then there's also like wealthy businessmen and, you know, again, sort of disaster capitalist money that goes into it. Um, then there's America. The US is obviously a major player when it comes to anti-gender organizing. And we see money coming into Europe from a whole range of right-wing and Christian nationalist foundations. The DeVos Foundation is a key one. So Betsy DeVos was Trump's education secretary. Her parents have a foundation called the Prince Foundation. They spend a lot of money. Templeton Foundation, some of the ones with sort of weirder kind of religious names that I can't remember. Gosh, sorry, I've gone completely blank on that. It's like Thomas More Society, those kind of organizations who are doing a lot of anti-gender organizing. And as I mentioned, Alliance Defending Freedom spends half a million in the UK every year. You know, these organizations are investing in Europe. Um, and that's really concerning because obviously, like I said, they they won on abortion. <laughs> they they made it work and they spent that money on rolling back abortion rights in the US, and they want to see that trends continue. The other aspect that I think is really interesting, which is this sort of disaster capitalist money. So I think people like fossil fuel billionaires and people like the Koch Foundation, who again, spend money on anti-gender activity, not necessarily because that's the outcome that they're 
really interested in, but because it allows them to get the other things they want, which is, you know, libertarianism, deregulation, telling people that they're being denied the freedom to be anti-abortion is the sort of message that they, those kind of big spenders put out. And then last but not least is Russia. And Russia is the hardest one to trace the funding to because that really is dark money a lot of the time. And um, Russia is famously difficult to look at if anyone that does financial journalist investigations will know. But we do know that there's money coming out of Russia to fund anti-gender activism. And again, that sort of links to a lot of the work that Russia has done to sort of create instability, to create division, to foster distrust across Europe, which again is a sort of patterns that we've seen in, in various issues that have been linked, well, various things that have taken place over the last decade. Um, and key to that are sort of two big oligarchs, one of whom, you know, had sort of a TV channel that platformed men like Alex Jones and Alexander Dugin, and one of whom was a railway magnate. And when when in 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine sort of first time around, the World Congress of Families was meant to happen in Russia and it got cancelled because of the sanctions. And so those two oligarchs kind of put on their own and invited many of the same sort of anti-gender people that we would have seen if it had carried on. So, yeah, Russia is, you know, one of the things that kind of feels more relevant now is that at the time they were sort of saying, oh, to Ukraine, like, oh, if you join the EU, you have to allow gay people to get married and sort of spreading that disinformation about gender rights in order to foster division and, and conflict. Yeah, um, uh... Um, should, what should I ask you about first? Well, let me stick with this actually. And let, so, could you could you maybe just talk a little bit about what sh- strategically? Obviously, there's a playbook that's been developed and is being shared in in various contexts. I mean, could you talk? I mean, I guess we've covered it in parts throughout this whole conversation. But but could you maybe talk about the way in which these conferences, these methods of organising, kind of implement their change and and what strategies they use to to achieve their goals? I mean, I think the best sort of starting point is the Agenda Europe manifesto because, helpfully, it tells you how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a playbook. Um, So as I mentioned, one of the ways is to get your people into positions of influence. Um, And we've seen this, um, a sort of anti-gender Polish organisation has just been sort of given that UN status uh, I think it's a, I can't remember the name of the status, but it's, yeah, so that's happened. And we see Citizen Go staff addressing the United Nations. Um, one of the ways of doing it is to have referendums. So this has been really key in Eastern Europe, particularly on issues around equal marriage. And actually, the way I got into this reporting is because I went to report on a referendum in Romania about trying to prevent, trying to have changed the constitution so that it said marriage was between a man and a woman and not between two spouses. And therefore, you need to have another referendum if you wanted to legalise gay marriage. And suddenly I was like, well, who are all these American organisations? <laughs> like, why does why are these big US religious groups getting involved in Romania? It doesn't make any sense. Like, And then you see that these similar referendums happen in Slovenia and in I think in Croatia and Slovakia. And it was the sort of organisations that were linked to Agenda Europe, to that network. So getting referendums to kind of stymie progress 
even if you don't win the referendum, as which is what happened in Romania, those people in, who were instrumental in organising it are now MPs. So it's a way of normalising your agenda and getting your agenda out in front of people. Then there's stuff like getting rid of things like buffer zones, banning late-term abortions by calling it partial birth abortion, which is not a thing, really focusing in on things like father's rights, that men should have a right to deny their partner abortion because he's involved too. Then really crazy stuff that like having memorials to the unborn, which is something we're now seeing in the States being promoted, um, having funerals for aborted fetuses, like which is something Mike Pence wanted to do. So there's those kind of big political things like, you know, getting into power, having referendums, getting your people as MPs. And then there's those kind of more emotional tactics, such as, like I say, like saying that it's, and I mean, I've even seen headlines being like the father's tragedy, the men who didn't want their partner to have abortion. Mm. It's like, yeah, okay, but that's a slippery slope again. These, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the other one being legislative change. So bans on buffer zones. And one of the really interesting things that you see in Agenda Europe, but also in the States, and has been wrote about in the States like a long time ago, is that this idea of using the language of your opposition against them. So we see increasingly anti-abortion groups talking about women's rights, women's safety, women's health, talking about the, you know, we've always had that kind of human right of the unborn, but also sort of talking about children's rights and just using this rights rhetoric. And then the partial birth abortion issue is a really good example of inventing a term that has no medical meaning. No, it doesn't describe what happens when you are very, very sick or your fetus is very, very sick and going to die. You know, it's like it doesn't have any relation to reality, but now it's in a law because they kept saying this term over and over again until people thought that this thing was, you know, something quite brutal that happened in hospitals. So, yeah, I think those are some good examples of strategies and tactics and how how they're shared, because, as I say, something that was written in this European manifesto about monuments is now just got a talking point in the States and vice versa. I think somewhere that maybe we could kind of, the final thing I could ask you about to maybe kind of bring us to sort of a conclusion is, I want to ask you, maybe going back to this thing about kind of a, an alliance between the mob and the elite, you know, why, why do the ultra wealthy, why do the capitalist class have an investment in uh, women, trans people, pregnant people's access to abortion um, beyond perhaps their own quote unquote sincere political attachments? And many of the things we're talking about here is that it, it is a wedge or a gateway or a kind of um, way into a comprehensive fascistic worldview, a very right-wing world. And so maybe maybe briefly, could you, could you just kind of like summarise maybe how, I mean, how, you know, how do, how do you think that happens? And, and maybe here as well, like, I, mean, I, I thought it was fascinating the way you write about, obviously you're a journalist and you kind of go in and speaking to people and you have that kind of uh, experience to write from as well as as a position as a kind of academic research in like, how does this as an issue act as a funnel for people into a that perhaps start off as a one issue person and it funnels them into a, a really comprehensive reactionary worldview with implications for a whole set of um, political questions? So I think first of all it's important to say that 
you know, people are anti-abortion for deeply held personal reasons. And so long as you then don't try and prevent other women from accessing reproductive health care, you can have your own personal beliefs, whatever they're rooted in, like if they're related in religious belief or personal experience. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I, I do think that's, that's not, obviously not a belief I agree with, but I can't police what other people believe. Yeah. And as I say, so long as you're not using it to harm other women, then you do you. But I think what we're seeing, particularly with the ultra-rich in capitalism, well, I mean, I guess an example of that is like maybe some of Trump's deputies very sincerely anti-abortion Trump opportunistically anti-abortion <laughs> like um, so I think with um capitalism there's this issue that goes that we're seeing this kind of changing aging population and the threat of states running out of money and so there's always been this impulse within capitalism to see women's bodies as a resource to exploit and we know that from Silvia Federici's work um where she talks a lot about the kind of early days of capitalism and women's status changing in society from being one where you could, you know, she gives examples of women being surgeons and having their own, farming their own bit of common land and stuff like that to being kind of reproductive vessels and that being, you know, capitalism changing women's status in a very radical way. And around the same time, the church sort of changed what it thought life began. So I think that's really important to recognise that there's a, there's a compulsion within capitalism in the situation we are right now to try and roll back progress and to try and roll back women's rights because the system that's been working for a few decades is no longer working. So that's important. Um, and then in terms of the funnel, I mean, I think in some ways where we're seeing this the most is in the sort of LGBT or anti-LGBT space where I mean, and I think that's partly because I'm speaking from a UK perspective or a UK context. And as I mentioned, the UK is generally quite pro-abortion. There's not a huge desire to roll things back. But there has been this kind of bubbling of anti-LGBT ideology. Well, I don't know, hate. Let's call it what it is, hate. Um, and people kind of being like, oh, okay, well, sex, I'm kind of in favour of sex education, but I, I don't want my five-year-old putting a condom on a banana. That's never going to happen because it's age appropriate. But, you know, these these lies that come in and and then it's like, oh, and it, who, it's LGBT people that want your kid to do that. And, oh, you know, I'm fine with LGBT people, but I don't think this and I don't think... And then suddenly you're kind of drawn into these conspiracy theories about gender and about people's sexuality and gender representation. And I've seen this, you know, close up that something that was very benign has suddenly become toxified, you know, Drag Queen Story Hour being an example. And then once you're in that kind of anti-gender space, some of the other things become palatable. You know, again, if you look at the um, National Conservatism Conference, you had people there who were very engaged, I thought, on one specific issue, suddenly being like, well, maybe abortion isn't so great because it's actually abortion good for women. Maybe it harms women. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It's really good for women. It's a very helpful thing that we fought for for a long time. Um, and so you, I think it's it's really interesting how in the UK that sort of, the, the sort of gender row has really focused in on LGBT stuff and then kind of brought people in. The other example, I think, is um, the sort of QAnon phenomenon when people for reasons of their own, may believe that there's a satanic conspiracy that 
But suddenly that became anti-vax, it became anti-immigration, it became um, anti-abortion. It stopped being about the bizarre, I was going to say a swear word, um, um, idea that there was this cabal trafficking children underground. It became about every single sort of far-right talking point. And people, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theory is vile and it's violent and it's a really dangerous thing. But it it went from being about one quite specific weird thing to being about everything. And and I think, you know, again, going back to that UK context, we're now seeing the anti-vax movement becoming increasingly anti-LGBT and therefore anti-abortion because they couldn't really get anywhere on the vaccinations. It was a huge success. People in Britain are very pro-vaccination. So it's like, okay, well, how can I, what how can I pick people up on a different issue? And I think that's really frightening. And I it's so easy. That's what I think the, the lessons of the last few years have been. It is so easy to get people in on one issue that they kind of maybe half care about if they think about it for a bit, but don't really pay attention to what it's actually about. Mm. And they're then suddenly going down these wormholes of, of all sorts of other conspiracy. And and I think the sort of and that that's that's my fear about a lot of the anti-LGBT stuff that's going on right now people who would never consider themselves to have been in this space are now spouting hate and that's causing real harm. Um, that might be a good place to leave it, but I'm, I'm also kind of tempted not to leave it on a, you know... Should we do the hopeful question? Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> because I, this isn't totally fabricated at the last minute. Like, I, I, I genuinely was thinking about asking, you know, ending on this before, so that's why I want to ask it. But... um. You know, do you think it works the other way? Because, I mean, with all this being said, um, you know, even in America, there's still a huge amount of support for access to abortion. It's still very popular. In the UK, we have this like rampant anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans especially movement sort of fermenting. But still, there's a lot of polling that suggests people are very pro-gay um, rights much more pro-trans than you might expect if you were to flick through some, you know, newspapers. I mean, do you, you know, as someone who's writing about this, oh, and the final thing I say as well is like, you know, as you point out there, like women, people that access abortions, um, you know, they have, there's a huge diversity of opinion. There's a lot of complex relationships with it, but overwhelmingly there's a huge amount of support for the fact that it's, it's great, you know, like reproductive autonomy and justice is really great you know being supported yeah. in your own decisions feels way better than being forced into a small box of a kind of trad wife uh you know baby producer and not much else so like the final thing is you know do you think this works the other way is it you know is, is there a way to kind of use this as a wedge to bring people into a, a kind of broader anti-fascist politics a broader kind of left-wing um worldview that is you know obviously I think is far more appealing <laughs> yeah absolutely so I, I mean I think it's really important to be hopeful and positive I think one of the things that w- happened with Roe is that it really was a wake-up call to a lot of people that this is something we need to fight for that you can't ever just think that oh it's it's a given we've got these rights they're they're stuck they're fixed it's never true and so in, in some ways, it took the worst thing to happen for, for the best thing to happen. 
even legislation legislators across Europe were suddenly like, oh God, we better sort out our abortion laws so they're a little bit stronger, they're a little bit more robust, they can't be rolled back so easily. There was this real sense of like people speaking much more openly about their defense of abortion and their support of abortion. I think um there's the shining example of Ireland, you know, the Together Fias movement was just a wonderful coalition of organizations coming together. I remember interviewing um Alvis Smith for the book and that chapter didn't make it in in the end but um actually you know like everyone just put their differences aside and we were like we're gonna win this referendum she was like the day after everyone's squabbling again you know like but for that moment it's like we have to come together this is too important we have to work as a movement and work as one and it worked you know and it was never certain that it was going to work I mean I remember that day so vividly just being like it was still a surprise that that the yes campaign won because you know the the no campaign was very many of the names that I've mentioned today <laughs> got involved in that and so I think that it's it's a really difficult time and we are in a period of backlash but there is so much energy there is so much feminist energy there's so much left-wing energy there's a real desire to to demand better and I think we are a generation that has won some real gains and we're not letting go of them very willingly you know there's not there's there's that sense that we are continuing to fight for progress and the best thing about the book for me the best thing about my job in general is that all the time I get to phone up activists who are working in the most extreme circumstances and doing the most incredible or inspiring work like helping girls get safe abortion helping LGBT activists open safe houses you know doing the sort of supporting migrant women with no recourse to public funds, like constantly working and constantly fighting to make things better. And so I get a lot of hope from that and hope from the fact that we're aware and we know we need to fight for better and we're going to. And I just want to finish with the statistic that um, the Centre for Reproductive Rights gave me just after Roe was overruled, which is like, yeah, this is, this is bad. You know, America's the big one. But something like 53 nations had liberalized abortion since 1973 and only four had rolled back their laws the fourth being america you know progress is going in the right way argentina chile colombia colombia countries where you never thought you'd be seeing safe legal abortion in in 2020s that you know they're doing it Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Sean for such a wonderful conversation. One final reminder that if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by signing up for a £1 a month donation, rating the show on Apple or Spotify and sharing this episode with people you think might enjoy it. Thanks again for listening and join us next week when I will be speaking to M.E. O'Brien about family abolitionism, insurgent social reproduction and the commune.